Hello and welcome to the seventh series podcast, where we talk about Ashtanga yoga and family life. The show is produced in Melbourne, Australia, by me, your host, Gaynor Stanisic. Hello and thanks for joining me. In this episode, I talk to Michelle Papa, who lives in Sydney, Australia. She's a mum to 10-year-old Cassie and is a yoga teacher. Michelle is the co-founder of Mindful Birth, a birth education, yoga and meditation program. In this episode, Michelle talks about her journey with yoga, fertility and her birth that ended in a cesarean. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Gaynor. I'm good. I hope you're well. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and where you're from and who's in your family? Okay. So I'm, I currently live in Sydney. And so I lived in Perth for over, I think, 11 years. And before that was Los Angeles. And then before that was in Asia, in Manila. So I've been hopping from one country to the other half of my life living in various countries. Um, We call Australia home. It's where I had my daughter um, and where really, you know, this is where we have established the roots. And I have Cassie, my 10-year-old daughter, and my husband, James. And where's your partner from? Um, Same thing, background. So originally from the Philippines in Manila, um, we both were coming in and out of Asia only because of education. So studying overseas and living overseas. I settled in LA in my mid-20s, but before that traveling to the States as well. And so there has always been kind of shuttling between Manila and Los Angeles for us, for me and my husband, San Diego, basically California and Manila. And then from there, we got married in LA and then lived in LA before deciding that we We're going to go on a little bit of an adventure and um, found Perth. We didn't think we were going to stay for good, um, but we fell in love with the city, the country, the culture, and that's where we had our daughter. And what do you do for work? Okay. Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, So I have 20 years of work experience here. I would have to say a little over that. Um, My background was in physics. So when I went to uni, I studied physics and I specialized in computer applications. So my first real job was a programmer and I didn't do a very good job at that. And I only stayed for six months, I think, with a financial institution. And then eventually I went into sales and marketing and I started working for technology companies. So I started working for Microsoft and then eventually found my way into an executive search firm in Santa Monica and I headed operations. So from kind of client facing, I moved into operations and have always loved kind of analysis and data. So I helped the owner of this small boutique executive search firm where we place CEOs and VPs for venture-backed companies in the Silicon Valley, um, so CEOs and VPs. And I manage kind of the research and information data and systems for them because of actually that work. That's how I found yoga. So I was very focused on career and very focused on kind of just like everybody, you know, getting out of university and finding a job, eventually to figure out what you want to do with your life. 
I found myself kind of really lost in that corporate world. Um, I enjoyed it, I have to say, and I was quite good at what I was doing. And I eventually found myself kind of looking for ways to manage stress. And then from there, I moved to Perth, the company I work for in LA, because I could remotely manage people and systems and help kind of the team remotely. And then I fell pregnant. And that was after five years of trying to have a baby. And then I stopped working and we kind of made family decisions based on having a child. <laughs> so I stopped working for some time and focused on yoga. That's when I started teaching yoga and eventually owned a yoga studio down the road and then stopped working part-time in Perth because I worked for a company in Perth for a few years doing consulting and then solely focused on teaching yoga for a solid five years, I think. But the 10 years that I've been teaching, I was working part-time and teaching yoga at the same time. Tell us a little bit about your yoga journey. When did you first start yoga and was that with Ashtanga or was it with a different style? Oh, so my first days of yoga was in, just like most people I would have to say, and I still remember it. I could actually feel um, kind of that excitement when I first, um, so it was in a community center in a place in Los Angeles and my husband and I, I've always loved movement. I, you know, I used to play tennis since I was a child and I did that all the way through to university and I was always, you know, I can find me moving in the gym. I think my parents really encouraged us to be healthy from that aspect. Um, and my dad was such a big influence in my life. He always loved things um, in relation to philosophy. So even before Deepak Chopra was really popular, he had a book on quantum physics. And I think that kind of drew me to the world of physics as well and to the philosophical underpinnings of yoga practice. And so I didn't know much about yoga then, but I was never religious. I come from a Catholic family, but my parents were never fully religious. But I would say they were quite, we were quite spiritual. So just believing in something greater than ourselves has always been kind of central in our family. And my dad has always been very influential. And so when I was trying to figure out how to manage my stress, you know, I, I lived in LA and it was just bustling with new things. And I think at that point, yoga was there, but I never really knew much about it. So I would do gym with my husband and dance with my coworker and then sneak out before I went home to this little community center and do yoga with a lady. And there were about 30 of us <laughs> in a basketball court. And I felt really drawn, like there was something about it moving with a breath. I think that's one of the things that really captured my attention that made me want to come back. And so after that, I did a little bit of research and that's how I found Annie Carpenter and practiced a few times with Shivaraya. And they were not as popular then. And um, that's how I came across vinyasa. So that was my first encounter with yoga and meditation. For some reason, I love the movement with breath and asana and postures and all of that. Um, but there was something about meditation that drew me as well. So I searched for ways to join meditation groups and where I lived. And I found Sharon Salzberg, who is a loving kindness teacher. So I followed her, listened to her CDs, read her books. And then eventually she was in LA at that time and did her workshop, eventually joined a retreat. So that's how I started my yoga journey. It was when I moved to Perth. And Perth, as you would know, is such a small community. And I remember I heard Ashtanga Yoga from Annie Carpenter, because that's her 
that's her background as well. She was from Anishtangi. And I started looking for that kind of going. And I also knew based on the teachers that were teaching in LA and exposure to Marty that there was something special about Ashtanga yoga, but I didn't have any clue what that was about. And so when I Googled yoga, a couple of Ashtanga schools came up. Tell me, Gainer, what's that yoga school before Yoga Hub in Perth? Eight Limbs. Eight Limbs. That's where I did my first beginner. Oh, wow. When they had a studio in Vic Park. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to do I used to do classes there. And oh my God, you know how it is, like a six-week beginner course. And, and I did it with my husband because I wanted to do something with him. Like we're in this new place. Let's do something together. And so we did this Ashtanga course together. And after that, I never looked back. Um, what happened was they closed Vic Park. And so I had to Google Ashtanga. I didn't realize they had another studio in Leaderville, I think. But what came up was yoga space in West Perth. And it was such a small studio back then. And that's when I found Jean and Rob. And that's when I started practicing my sore. And the rest is history. Then I fell in love with it and went to India. And this was after I had my daughter in 2010. So I've been practicing Ashtanga for at least a decade or over a decade and yoga for over 15 years now. So you had already had Cassie when you first started Ashtanga? Yeah, so that was before Cassie. Um, Before I had my daughter, I started practicing Ashtanga. I remember that journey quite well because I think that was around 2008. And then after after my beginner's course, I started doing Ashtanga-led. And I was very intimidated with my sort of practice because one, I never, you know, I wasn't sure, do you have to be able to bind in myself to do to attend a or I was ignorant, I would say. And um, and so I just kept coming to lead classes and at night time, which I didn't realize was kind of full on. That's why it was kind of energized after every class. And um, I did that for at least a year before I gave into my sort of practice in the morning. And that was before I had a do- my daughter. I was going through primary. And I, th- I remember I was trying to learn how to do dropbacks. That was when I had my daughter and I felt like, oh my God, what's going to happen to my practice? Just like everyone else. So you alluded to before there was a bit of a journey with fertility. So did you make the decision that you wanted to start a family? Yes. Yeah, so even before moving to Perth, we have been we were, we've been trying, maybe not as hard as we wanted to. We have, that, that just saying, you know, we haven't taken the, the chance to see specialists and everything. We were just going, let's see what happens. Let's see what the universe kind of provides for us. And then when we moved to Perth, because it has been five years of just trying and trying. Um, and, you know, we sat down and we were thinking, are we seriously going to consider all our options? And at that time, IVF came to mind. And so we um, met with an obstetrician um, who specialized in IVF, and I did a couple of tests. But even before those tests, we we you know we were kind of doing time conception with the obstetrician, and we were supposed to do another kind of treatment. But she was like, Michelle, you're almost thirty five. I was thirty three when I fell pregnant. So you're almost 35. We should just jump. Let's just do this one last procedure, which was an internal exam, a, lapros- a lap- laparoscopy, just to see if I had anything, any cysts or endometriosis going on. And, and then after that procedure, we jumped into IVF. So I found out I had endometrio- endometriosis. And after the laparoscopy check, which was a surprise to everyone, including myself, because I 
did not have any severe symptoms of endometriosis. I remember having like mild cramping whenever I had my period. But, and from what I know now, people who normally have severe endometriosis, sometimes they can't even go to work or school and they're homebound and they take these strong pain medications. And I never had any of that. But my, my results showed otherwise. So yeah. And so after that, I had to go back in for another surgery to just take everything off. And my obstetrician strongly suggested that after a couple of months, I go through the IVF round. And Jones and I had to think about it. And, you know, we kind of said, maybe we just skip IVF. If, if it's meant for us, it's meant for us. We were even open to adoption and other ways of having babies because I don't have anything against IVF. I just knew just from the education that we were going through with IVF, how intense that is for the body. And, and so I wasn't sure whether I was ready for that. And then the month or a few weeks or a month after my endometriosis was, you know, all of the growths were taken out, taken out after that procedure, I felt pregnant. So, and apparently that's not normal. I would say it was a blessing in a way that um, we ended up having Cassie without having to go so with endometriosis, does that impact the lining of the uterus? Yes. So what happens is um, it does. So you've, we all have, and we all have that endometrium, the lining. And what happens is that sometimes through our menstrual cycle, the thing about endometriosis is the cause is unknown, really. The treatment varies person to person and the impact of endometriosis, depending on how severe it is, can vary as well. So just like me, you might have severe endometriosis, but not have the same symptoms as person B who is in extreme pain. And what happens is if you've got these growths everywhere and they can be in your uterus, they can be in your kidneys, they can splatter everywhere. And that can, not everyone who, who has endometriosis has issues with fertility. But there is a correlation between endometriosis and even things like polycystic PCOS um, has a correlation with fertility issues. And that was true for me. So when I had kind of that procedure to clean everything up, um, I was fortunate enough to conceive right away. And so what were the first signs that you were pregnant? Oh my gosh, first sign, soreness of breast. So again, you know, and this is why when I talk about the menstrual cycle um, as part of kind of the mindful birth training and education, pregnancy and menstruation will get soreness of breasts. Um, I didn't have that when I menstruated. My breasts were not sore at all, but I knew I was pregnant because my breasts were immediately sore. They were really tender. And I woke up one morning going, ah, oh, this is really sore. This is different. And I took a test based on that. I haven't skipped my period yet. And my period is quite regular. And so I, I knew early, early on that I was pregnant. And I took the test and I went to the doctor and we did the whole blood test. What was happening in your practice at that time? Because I didn't know I was pregnant and because we've given up on the idea of going through IVF at that point. I practiced. I went in the morning, rolled out my mat, did primary series. I was not kind of backing off at all. I was just going about my practice the way that anyone would because I didn't know. But the minute I knew, I modified practice absolutely. So you practiced through the first trimester? So when I found out I was pregnant, that's when I started modifying. So my first trimester, I felt really tired. 
I felt like I could not do anything at all. I felt like a bus hit me. Like I just couldn't, I was unproductive. <laughs> um, I was working remotely for the company that I worked for in LA. And I remember being just super tired and not having the drive and the ability to work. And not only did it impact work, it impacted my practice. So I did a lot of restorative and meditation. It was in my second trimester that I went back and practiced my sore and did modified Ashtanga practice all the way through to the third trimester before I gave birth. What sorts of modifications did you do in your practice? Had you started intermediate at that point? I think I was doing primary and I was still working on my drop backs and kind of walking my hands in. <laughs> I remember that really well. So it sounds like you were still new to the practice. So did you find that your intuition guided you in terms of what you should or shouldn't be doing? Or was that a teacher that guided you through the practice? I think both. I think there is so much. So I went back second trimester and, you know, you get that renewed sense of energy in your second trimester and you kind of, your belly starts to show. So instinctively binding deep binds or closed binds, you know, like twisting deeply with a leg, with your chest facing your leg, which is no longer viable. The kind of logic would kick in. And things like I had, you know, Jean who practiced her first pregnancy at that point, she had a little boy then, Jamie, and because she had a modified practice, I, she was able to give me teaching how to modify. And so my practice, it's so interesting, second trimester, you know, doing the sun salutations, um, no jumping back, of course, revolved twists, close twists would be, you know, maybe taking one hand to the leg or, or a block focusing on shoulders instead of really rotating deeply. So really modifying. And then until the third trimester, you can start to see it change from a sun salutation. I was doing what I teach now, which is a pregnancy sun salutation, um, completely modified and slowing down. You know, at some point I remember so well that doing a shoulder stand just was not comfortable in my second trimester. I could not breathe. So a lot of it is, inst- you know, YouTube wasn't as big as it is now where or in or social media where it's so confusing because you see experienced practitioners doing or practicing, you know, handstands and dropbacks and things like that. So I didn't have that reference at all. It was basically my teacher at that point and myself. And I felt really secure and I felt really safe practicing. And then you said you did practice through your third trimester. So when did you stop practicing or did you practice up to when you gave birth? Yes, I practiced until I gave birth. And the thing about Ishtanga, I think, is that there is this misconception that that the practice has to look a certain way. I think when you go through different phases of life, that could look very different. And so modifying postures was really important. The pace that you move, you know, you move with a breath and maybe because you're pregnant, you move slowly, you take extra breaths. So it became a space basically to, for me at that point in time, to really, and I think my sort of practice is such a really lovely space for that, to kind of practice at my own space, be with my body, be with my breath. And to I really felt secure. Like I honestly, if a teacher can be there for you and their experience, ideally some, you know, someone who understands pregnancy, that 
practice or that space just allows you to move within your own capacity versus because I know just from experience and having taught and trained teachers in prenatal yoga, I know some pregnant women who still come to general vinyasa classes. So I think the Mysore space, which is self-paced, is even safer for pregnant women than a vinyasa class. Ideally, you'd want to come to a prenatal yoga class, but if you have the opportunity to practice in a Mysore room, which I did all the way through to the end. I think what's important when you're practicing is to not have that tapas. So you're saying you slowed it down, like to not have that, like that intensity in your practice. And that's where like a Mysore program can be good because you can sort of still practice and flow with it and focus on your breath without having that intensity or heat like you really just let that go absolutely and I think as you go through different stages of pregnancy for example for me in the third trimester as you come closer to having your baby and at that point as I was preparing for birth that third trimester is an important time to kind of connect to softening so when we talk about ashtanga we talk about bandhas right so you then you talk about mulabandha which translates to your pelvic floor muscles and in Ashtanga, there is that focus on engaging Mulabandha and Udhyana Bandha and that lock, that seal to guide you through your practice. In the third trimester, actually, it's a really good time to start letting that go. And you can still do that in a Mysore room, given that you know that. I think that's so essential to know. You know, I have had the, the opportunity to assist and hold space for people in the Mysore room. And so we've had pregnant ladies, students come through and you know, when I chat to them about practicing the third trimester, I talk about find time in your practice um, to really explore what that softness means like. Because if you do, if the plan is or the intention, I would say, is to go through a vaginal birth, that is so essential. And if you're practicing for an hour and a half normally within a Mysore space and, you know, you start letting go of certain postures and your practice might be a little bit shorter, then you start adding meditation or breath practice, and then you can start adding that kind of exploration of what it means to let go of your bandhas. What does it mean to actually let go of your pelvic floor and to soften into your belly and to really use your breath to kind of guide you through that sense of softening? What were your first signs of labor? I had contractions, um, very mild contractions, um, and I would say I was in labor for about two days and then had the baby on the third day. So I felt really mild contractions, felt discomfort around the belly into my lower back. And I found out eventually that I was still in early labor. The mucus plug started shutting off. Um, my cervix wasn't opening in as much as I was feeling the contractions. So it was a mixture of many things. So at what point did you go to the birthing center? Um, just headed to the birthing center, I think, when my contractions were getting a little bit more consistent and my mucus plug was really shutting off, or what they call the bloody show. My contractions were really intense. And when I got into the birthing center, I, with my permission, of course, they did a vaginal exam and I was only two centimeters dilated. So really feeling contractions for two days, heading headed to the birth center on day three. It was the most um, excruciating card ride I've ever experienced. <laughs> 
I had to sit at the back of my car and be on my hands and knees just to work through those contractions. So that was when I headed to um, the birthing center. I was still very early in labor, I would say. When you arrived at the birthing center, what sorts of things were you doing? Had you started to sort of get some guidance? Yeah, maybe just to backtrack a little bit. So I really wanted to stay at home for as long as I could and knew that I wanted to go to the birthing center during the active stage of labor because I knew then that my labor was established, that I didn't have to stay for too long. And I also knew that I did not have so much time in the birthing center. So unlike birthing at home where you can wait, there was time pressure as well within that setting. And so if I didn't have the baby within X number of hours, I was going to be transferred to hospital. And I knew what I was up against when should that happen. And so I thought I was further along in labor. I rang the birthing center and I did say to them, I could not talk. And that's a really good sign when you can no longer really concentrate on everyone else, but everything starts to become more internal. And and so everyone thought, including myself, my doula, the midwives, that I was further along. And so I went into the birthing center, felt really welcome and cozy and at home. I just did what I wanted to do. And so I was, you know, very active. There was a bed in the birthing center. I, uh, my, my husband and my doula placed all my belongings just in the room. And I was just very calm and no fuss. The light was dim. It was, it was really cozy and I felt very safe. The midwife at some point realized that I knew what I was doing. And so she just left me. <laughs> I, it was just myself and my doula and James most of the time. The only times I saw her was when they had to check how far along I was. I did a vaginal check and further along in labor, you know, they did suggest that they break my waters just to get labor going, to speed up labor. And I wanted to wait originally for my water to break naturally, but I knew I didn't have a lot of time. So we did say yes to that. And it just took a long time for Cassie to move down. And I also found out when they did the exam that two things. One was that Cassie was posterior. So her, her back and her spine was pressing against my back. And that caused, and now in hindsight, oh, that was why I felt intense back pain <laughs> and labor pain. So it's quite normal for a lot of women to feel that they're further along in labor when baby's in a posterior position. And it takes a while, a long, long time for baby to kind of move into that anterior position. So I was doing what I can to get baby, to get Cassie to just move into anterior, to get her positioned really well using gravity and alignment, all of that. And I also found out, and I think this is what worried me, to be honest, like looking back, I think that's the thing that caused a little bit of fear, which can make labor really, when one is, it becomes more intense. Second is that there is that introduction of stress. So you're not as calm as you think you are and it affects your hormones. And that was when I found out that she had meconium. So when they broke my water, they tested the water to see if um, meconium is baby's first poo. And they flag that. And I know how important that is because when babies inhale that or consume it in the belly or during labor, that it can affect their breathing and their lungs and respiratories. Um, issues. And so, yeah, so left me alone. I labored quite nicely. Um, I reached about six to seven centimeters at the birthing center. I used to shower. I was moving. I even used the bath and I was in water and that was really amazing. We did everything we could. And because of the meconium and 
you know, not having enough time to stay in there. I was moved to hospital and they have to as just part of routine because of the meconium to ensure that baby is fine and that I'm okay as well. So we had to make that transition at some point. And it, I would say that was the most, I would say, stressful part of labor, that shift and change. You move from that state of really be- being centered and calm to just the adrenaline going. And that was <laughs> my transition from um, kind of my transition from home to birthing center to, to hospital. And whatever happened in hospital was, was really, again, completely different from those different places that I was originally in. When you said that it became stressful when you moved over to the hospital, did you also get a sense that something wasn't quite right? Uh, the minute they told me that meconium was present, I knew one is that I didn't have enough time because I knew the effect of that to baby. And if my baby was in posterior, then it would take me longer. I knew that I might have to get transferred to hospital because they have to monitor both of us. And I also knew that if I wanted to have a vaginal birth that they we needed to help facilitate labor we need to get it going because the baby can't stay there for too long so i knew right away and i think you know in a very subtle subtle way and i always say this when i teach um, yoga classes or birth education classes or during our trainings that the subtle things affect women in labor and i can relate to that in so many ways and one thing is information you know you go, oh my God. And the first thing you think about is your baby's safety. I didn't even think about, oh my God, I'm not going to have a vaginal birth. That was the last thing in my mind. I'm going, okay, I need to get this baby out and I really need to work hard and I really need to trust my body and the process. But I also know what I'm up against. And I think that whole mother's instinct really kicks in right away. So when I got transferred to hospital, I actually was very open to it, to be perfectly honest. I think for peace of mind, And I kind of knew as well, and this is just, I'm, you know, lucky enough because it's what I teach and it's what I study, that I knew I could still be active in hospital, even though I had the fetal monitoring unit wrapped around my belly, even though I ended up having synthetic oxytocin through the IV, even though, you know, I had all these other interventions, I knew that I could still be moving, you know, I was standing next to my hospital bed, I was kneeling, I was doing all, you know, apart from postures, all the breath practices that I've ever practiced in my life before pregnancy and during pregnancy. So I was very much aware and and very much scared, <laughs> to be honest, as well, and fearful and uncertain and just wanting to do the best I could at that point. So I was in, in hospital and um, one thing that, and I'm really happy, at least in, because I had my baby in Perth. One thing that has changed in Perth that I know of is that continuity of care. And that's such an essential part. And it's evidence-based, it's research-based. And, and it's just human nature to want that care from beginning to end. And I didn't have that when I moved from birthing center to hospital. So there was a shift of guards. And from you know working with these beautiful midwives who knew my story, I had to be moved to hospital and and again, get reacquainted with the environment and with these new set of people. And... and Labor stalled and slowed down. I was really stuck at 7 cm even though I was moving. And, and I think I knew kind of why that was happening. And I also felt as if I didn't really have much enough time. But really the shift in environment and not knowing who these new people are really affected my labor. And it slowed things down a lot more. 
at that point, because we, you know, I, the doctors wanted me to have the baby, some of the interventions were introduced. So I ended up having synthetic oxytocin and the synthetic oxytocin is there to make your contraction stronger, but it made my contraction stronger, but my cervix wasn't opening. So I was stuck at 7 cm. And again, this is one of the misconceptions in labor. If your contractions are strong, then, you know, there's uh, this big possibility that you can have a vaginal birth. Things have, there are things that are linked together that need to happen. So my cervix was an opening and, and so I was stuck there. And so with a synthetic oxytocin, I was so tired because I've been laboring for three days. This is day three at this point. And I knew that exhaustion can affect labor. And so one thing that we, that I asked for, and that was introduced was, you know, they did ask me, would you like an epidural so you can rest? And I knew rest was really important because rest can get your body to, you know, it can get your body to recover, you can pause, and then you can get going again. So we agreed, or I agreed on having that epidural that you can control that you just press this button, and you get this, you know, shot of epidural, and you rest, and you don't feel the contractions. And, and I really wanted that so that during pushing stage, I could feel something and I can kind of connect to that. So I rested really nicely. And then um, after a couple of hours, and this is very close to midnight, um, my baby got into distress. And so things did not progress. My cervix still wasn't opening. She was still stuck in a posterior position. I was very hopeful. I, you know, when I woke up from my nap, I thought, okay, I can, I can do this. But then she went into distress. And so that meant that I had to be, I had to move immediately from hospital to theater. So it went by so quickly. And next thing you know, I was in theater and because I had such long labor. Normally, you'd have one person go in with you in theater, and that's normally your partner, whoever it is that you choose. Um, They actually allowed my husband and my doula, Jane, to come with me. So I had two people in theater, and it was the most, I would say, amazing, gentle experience I've ever had. Like, all these thoughts around C-section, that completely went away because I felt really safe, and the people were so nice. That was 11.30, almost 11.30 at night. And, you know, it was quick. Next thing you know, I had, you know, Cassie was born and I birthed my little daughter and she was taken to the little table. But my husband went there, went with her and and my husband was touching her hand while the pediatrician was examining her. And just to check that her breathing is stable, that her, you know, her vitals are stable. And then immediately she was moved into my chest. And so at the, you know, the next half of the procedure where they stitch you up, I knew things were happening, but it was such a beautiful thing to have her on my chest. That natural surge of oxytocin and feeling a sense of relief and safety together with my husband there and my doula there. It was just, it was just really good. Yeah. And then from there I was moved to uh, my room. And she was, you know, we were briefly separated, um, but Cassie was always been with James. And so she, James went with Cassie. And after a few minutes, I was, um, you know, I was reunited with her in, in, in my room. Talk then about what it was like initially as a new mum, the expectation and then the reality of being a mother. Oh, so much. Um, there's a lot there to unpack, to be honest. I think no one really prepares you for motherhood. And I think this is why there is this, uh, you know, kind of 
borderline obsession for some in terms of birth preparation, because I feel in a way it's a subtle kind of way of, for mothers to prepare for motherhood without even consciously thinking about it, <laughs> because it's what we can all control. Um, and so that's a beautiful thing. I would say that's a beautiful thing. Prepare for birth because it is such a beautiful rite of passage. But I would say it is just the beginning of this texture journey that we all go through as women. And, you know, when you have your baby, there is no rest for mothers. You immediately have your baby and you think, oh, I've got, you know, a few days to recover from my pregnancy. Because some people think we just recover from birth. We recover from pregnancy. That is a change. And then, you know, we birth our babies, our bodies change again, our lives change. And then the baby's there and you go, oh, we know, what do I do? And so, we really took some time to, I would say, reintegrate back into society. Um, I was lucky enough to have my mother and father with me for a couple of months. My mother stayed for three months, and that was really beautiful. I attempted to go out for lunch with my whole family together with a newborn, and that did not go well. <laughs> and so I realized very early on that, okay, I really do need to slow down and really take this time for myself and to connect, to connect with my baby. And, and that is just, you know, and it's simple things like sitting, feeding your baby and putting her to bed and going to sleep if you can. And it's, you know, it's this whole new life like never before. So I would say if mothers can take the time to really, at least the first 40 days, we call it fourth trimester in other cultures, they call it sitting, to take that time. It doesn't have to be anything special. It just has to be about slowing down and taking the time to connect with yourself and your baby. And then the recovery, the biggest thing I learned is that there's no rushing, no rushing back to yoga practice in the way that it looked because the body has changed completely. Practicing everything we teach in yoga where, you know, be gentle and ahimsa, self-compassion, all of that, I think, really goes hand in hand with mothering. And I feel that it's integration really of the things we love in our practice and and bringing it all together in, in our journey in motherhood. So yeah, it, it can be intense, but it can be the most beautiful thing as well. What was your recovery after the birth like? Uh, yeah, I think physical recovery took a long time. I mean, C-section, is it took me quite a while. I mean, but I would say that people recover for, from it in different ways. Of course, in the first couple of weeks, you know, because you can't drive, you can't, you know, the doctor tells you and the midwives would tell you, just carry your baby. And so you're so keen to be out and about. You're so keen to do something, but everyone's telling you to slow down and, and your body, if you do listen to it, it does, it does give you signs that you should slow down. And so physical recovery took a while. I, you know, when I was ready to practice, it was super gentle. All the things that, that are intense in practice, you know, you kind of let that move to the side and come back to basics and, you know, awareness of pelvic floor, core awareness again, working on the different parts of the body that's tight. For me, those are kind of physical, yeah, a physical focus, but approached in a more subtle and gentle way. I still practice Ashtanga. Um, very dedicated to the practice at that time. And so I modified my practice. But I also learned that I was actually stronger and recovered pretty quickly, I would say, 
and have that awareness because of previous practice. I'm really grateful for that. Um, one thing that stood out from a physical standpoint is that when I ended up having a C-section, that kind of wound, it took a while for me to regain, you know, that connection back to the core muscles. So specifically your lower belly, so Uddiyana Bandha. And, and so it took a while for me to go, ah, I actually feel tension. And of course that makes sense because it's a really deep cut, you know, layers and layers of abdominal muscles. So I really took my time and I was really gentle in regards to my physical practice. Emotionally and mentally, I think I could not deal with kind of rehashing what happened in birth immediately. So I really took my time in terms of just healing the parts of me that I felt needed attention, you know, feeling the loss, oh, why didn't I birth that way? Or feeling the shame, oh, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Or blame and guilt, all of that. I had to deal with that later on. Like I could not, you know, I could not mother and deal with all of that load immediately. So I really took my time. Now from a, from a yoga practice, that's where all the meditation practice came into play. And I think that was so important for me at that point to really accept that part of acceptance and acknowledgement of what has happened and to go through blame and then realizing that I didn't really have any control over it and then finding, making peace with all of that. So that took a lot of time. Mentally and emotionally, you know, motherhood is a roller coaster for many reasons. The hormones in the body changes, the demand changes, it's overwhelming, relationships change. And so eventually just settling into our own rhythm. I think our family, James was really supportive. And at the time when I was going crazy because I was, my daughter wasn't a good sleeper. Oh, like horrible. We created a little plan and when he would come home, he'd be taking care of her, whatever that looks like. It could be that she's sleeping, but, you know, he's awake from 6 o'clock till 12 o'clock. So I had that window to sleep unless she needed me for feeding. And then from 12 o'clock onwards, then if she's asleep, I'll sleep. If she's awake, then that's kind of my window. And so we kind of had to figure out a way to make it work for our family that helped a lot in relation to, you know, that emotional and mental kind of healing and, you know, just creating space. And so I could do yoga in the morning and I'd take Cassie with me or when she was a lot older, I could leave her with, with James and, and I could come home and he can go to work. So there's a lot of that support. I needed my practice to help me through that. And my friends community was so important. Did you breastfeed with Cassie? I did. I did. That was horrible for me as well. <laughs> it was the most challenging. Now, one thing, you know, one thing I say now when I teach classes is if your intention is to breastfeed, you need to make sure you have a number or a contact, or contact information of a lactation consultant, or at least try to find out things about breastfeeding. How do babies latch? What are some of the struggles? Because it does not come, come naturally for some women. I thought it was just like, oh, I gave birth. My milk's going to come out. Like my breast felt really, really full. And <laughs> oh, babies, they latch. You know, you see it. You see it in books. You see it everywhere. No one tells you that it can be very challenging. And no one tells you that 
your boot nipples will crack, that you'll get mastitis. No one tells you any of that. And so I went in blind, focused solely on, on birthing, didn't think much about breastfeeding. And I had to learn the hard way. It didn't come naturally, but I did breastfeed her. I did breastfeed her. At some point when I wasn't producing milk, uh, we had to decide that we had to mix feed. But then at some point, everything started to flow. So it took a little bit of time for me to adjust. And again, with breastfeeding, when we women feel guilty about it, there's so much guilt around not being able to breastfeed. And, you know, for me, the most important thing is feed your baby the best way you can. You learn as much as you can and, and see what happens. So yeah, I did. I did. And at some point I mixed fed as well. It's definitely something that people don't tell you about. You know, initially your baby has this natural instinct to go for your boob and then it forgets that. Yes. You know, you'll hear so many stories. It do, It's true. It's like they smell you. So the thing about babies is they smell the milk, they smell you. They always, there's that natural inclination to want to suckle. And that's part of their kind of primitive reflex. And, and it's amazing. But then there are other factors such as, you know, the sucking of the baby, the latching of the baby. And you know what I recently found out? Because I went to, I took Cassie to her dentist. She's 10. She noticed that Cassie had, I forgot the terminology. Tongue tie? She was tongue tied. So her sucking was affected by that and the positioning of her tongue. So before she even told us, she asked Cassie, when you suck, where do you put your tongue? Cassie sucks and puts her tongue even now and chews her food and sucks in with her tongue at the bottom. Apparently, the natural thing to do is for your tongue to be up the upper palate. And then the dentist said, so did she have sucking issues during breastfeeding? I'm like, oh my God, longest breastfeeder ever. I would sit in the breastfeeding room for an hour, she would be hungry again after a few minutes. So she wasn't sucking properly. So did you observe the fourth trimester? Was that a conscious or a slow postpartum? Was that a conscious thing? Or was that something that you intuitively uh, lent towards? I think it's a combination of many things. One is I knew of the fourth trimester. I knew of the practice of sitting in many different cultures. I also was fortunate enough, you know, that I decided that I was not going to work for the first year. And so I made that conscious effort to really slow down and really focus on baby. I knew that because I felt somehow, because we really had a difficult time having a child. So in my mind, James and I, you know, upon reflection, we were thinking this could be our only child. And so I wanted to make the most out of it. And I have been working for maybe close to probably 15 years at that point. So in a way, I wanted to slow down and really enjoy motherhood, at least for a year. And that stretched out to two years or two and a half years. But so it's a lot of a combination of many things. So talk to us a little bit about when you returned to practice and what your practice looked like at that time. Practice, I think, was very much anchored on what felt really good for me. At that point, it was Ashtanga framework. It didn't look like the Ashtanga practice that you would see when you go in a Mysore room or, you know, the, all the jump throughs and jump backs and deep back bends and things like that. It was very uh, pulled back a lot and really focused on reconnecting with myself. So I do a few sun salutes. I'll do my standing posture. I wouldn't even bind in my chasana D. I'd skip that. Not really skip, but just do something else. 
and then lots of relaxation, legs up against the wall and Vibri Dikrani. And that's in a good day. If it's a really bad day, I did lots of restorative, lots of meditation and breath practice. And so that was my first year. How old was Cassie when you went back to yoga? I think I started moving again. Like I started practicing again about 12, after 12 weeks. But again, you know, when I say practice, it's, you know, it's very gentle. It's super gentle. And then I really felt like I could reconnect with my body again. I would say, you know, I felt like myself again, closer to two and a half years. And that's when I went to Mysore. I went to Mysore before Cassie turned three. That was my first trip to Mysore. And that's when I felt my body, I felt it was, you know, it was a different body, but I felt, you know, I felt really strong. I felt stronger, to be honest. Um, but I think I attributed that to pulling back, practicing really gently and slowly building, building again. There's so many changes, like, you know, you'd be amazed, like they say that it takes a couple of months for things to come back, you know, to its proper place. And then if you look at your spine, the shape has changed just because of, you know, the baby being in your belly and everything being pulled forward, your pelvic floor weakens, it's a lot of physiological changes. And then you've got the hormones in the body going, like relax and still in the body until you stop breastfeeding. So there's a lot of these factors that women forget and they push through practice thinking that, oh, you know, I'll just go back to practice. And then you meet injuries, you you get injuries, you get injured. And, you know, the more that you slide back, <laughs> the more that it becomes frustrating. Once you return to practice, how did you make that work with your family? What did the balance look like? I think that's the trickiest part when it comes to having baby and just children in general. I think it's the trickiest bit. I guess, you know, when they're a teenager and they can go to school on their own, that's a different story. But until you're involved in your child's life, then for me, I practice based on not just my child, but based on James's availability as well, because we didn't have family with us. I couldn't just drop off Cassie to my parents or sibling. I couldn't do any of that. So I did go back to practice. There were times when I brought her in and I could, you know, just do as much as I could while, she, while you know, she was still happy. I practiced every day, but there would be times when I'd practice at home. And there were times when I practiced early, early in the morning. And there were times that I practiced in the middle of the day or later in the night. It was just, you know, whatever it is that I could do with the time that was available. But I really made sure that I carved out time for that whenever time was available. And then now I, you know, when they grow up, they... You know, you can practice in the mornings if it's something that you want to do. And, and that's something that I embrace in my practice now, carving out a specific time, only because she's older. When did you return to work and what was your work at that time? Okay, so the first two and a half years, I was still teaching a little bit and I was mothering and I was teaching mindful birth as well at that time. And then when she reached two and a half I went back to work part-time and I worked as a training manager, HR person for an IT company in Perth. And I only, I only worked part-time. So initially I couldn't, I tried taking my daughter to daycare. I felt guilty just like every mother would feel guilty. And I, all my friends would tell me that's normal, but I still felt bad. And because of the guilt, I actually... <laughs> got a friend to look after Cassie in the first couple of months. <laughs> 
And then eventually, you know what I said, it's time for her to, I was comfortable enough for her to go to daycare and she was happy in daycare. And so I, you know, I continued working part-time for two and a half years, but I was also teaching. I was teaching mindful birth and I was teaching yoga classes. So, and practicing. So I was juggling all of that at the same time. I have a very supportive husband and his work is quite predictable. He didn't have to fly in and out. So we could have a routine and a schedule. I was very lucky. Tell us a little bit more about mindful birth and what led you down that path. Okay, so mindful birth started over a decade ago, and and this is with Jane. Jane Byrne. Jane Byrne, yes. And so when I met Rob and Jane, it was through the yoga space, training, Ashtanga, the Ashtanga world. And at that time, she was teaching prenatal, and we had some other lady running the training with her, just pre- and postnatal. And then at some point she offered it to me and I was doing my diploma for childbirth education and then we ended up adding module three, so which is the yoga for birth, and that makes up what mindful birth is. So it's a pre and postnatal yoga teacher training that's based on research and the research really shows us that about informed choice being really key in terms of birth satisfaction and the sense of openness to the experience, which is very much, you know, part of yoga philosophy and what we call awareness, mindful awareness of what's happening in the here and now. So combining all of that kind of the Eastern side of yoga practice in the West, we're in the research, there's psychology in it as well in birth education, bringing them all in together. So it's really a mindfulness childbirth education program for yoga teachers, doulas and midwives. And we started it because we felt as if we wanted to take prenatal yoga and postnatal yoga beyond what it was, wherein people would come to class and do the asana and do some breath work and kind of theoretically know that this can help in birth. And so having kind of learning outcomes and answering the questions, why does it help? And what are the research and tools and where can you find information that can help you? What does support look like and why is support essential? So these different components make up what mindful birth is. And so we wanted to address a gap and we also wanted women to feel that they can own their experience, no matter what it looks like. It looks like because empowerment can look very differently for everyone. That's what we wanted. What we wanted to do was instead of reaching women as they're pregnant, why not train teachers so that they can share that within their community? So we started. It started in Perth, then we started making our way into Asia, so Singapore. And, and then Hong Kong, and then it started getting larger. And yeah, that's what mindful birth was. It came from that love for supporting women into something kind of a, re, a passion for us and seeing how these teachers globally, we have teachers who have come from community of oppression and learning so many new things whilst they sit there in training and going that yoga can be beyond the postures and everything that we see on social media. And how do you make that work with your family, particularly Cassie, if you're traveling? Does she travel with you sometimes or does she stay with her dad? Yeah, so she started traveling very little. Yes, we made it work. I brought James. So uh, to be honest, I didn't earn anything. Everything went into airline tickets and hotels and I invited my parents to come over so they can help James. It was like a family affair. (laughs) 
And I was really doing it for the love of it. And then eventually when she grew older, because our train, the intensive training would take nine days. So that means I'll be away from home for nine days. As she got older, especially when she went to school, when she started going to school, it became easier. And again, because James's work is predictable, whereby he has an eight to five job, that meant that he could drop Cassie off in the morning and just tell the team, my my wife is overseas, so I need to be working from home <laughs> and pick her up, work from home. And yeah, and that really worked for us. So I'll be away for 11 days, including travel and teaching. And it was really challenging, I would have to say. I, you know, just like everyone, feeling that mother mother's guilt of leaving your child for 11 days and really craving time to be with her. But, you know, when I'm home, I'm home. Like I you know, unless I was teaching yoga, I, I was always there. So it kind of balanced everything out. And it made me, I guess it made my husband appreciate everything that I did for the family as well. So it worked for us, really. It's it's a team effort, I would say. Tell us if you think yoga has helped you in your parenting. Oh, absolutely. I just had a conversation with my husband last night, and we were just reflecting on how yoga has changed so much. And sometimes I honestly, I feel like, oh, you know, they're just like, oh, what's happening? But, you know, I was telling him, but I'm really grateful. I don't think that I'd be the mother that I am if it were not for yoga and if it were not for my birthing experience, to be perfectly honest. I think if I had a a different birthing experience, then I'd be a completely different teacher. It opened my eyes to just how it's just empathy and connection to other people's experiences. Like I understand what that person has gone through might not be exactly the same way, you know, same experiences I've had, but I can connect with that like wholeheartedly, not from a theoretical perspective. And it also really made me realize how important this concept that we teach that letting go, we always say that as teachers, you know, and postures, let go, let go, you know, in parenting as our child gets older, initially it's energetic. Like you're super exhausted and you're, you know, like never before. And as they grow up, what I'm realizing in this stage where she's in, where emotions come into play, you can see her change physically. And you know that, you know, monarchy is coming very soon. And what others think and the social aspect of things are really important. Then how do you teach those values to a child? And how do you, when things are challenging, how do you step back and take a breath and hold your composure and and be there and hold space for your child? And I think all of those things to be perfectly honest, I think I've learned that the most from my yoga practice and not just my yoga practice, but the relationships with relationships I've had with people. I think yoga's played such a big part of that. Previously, you mentioned that you're perimenopausal. Yes, I am perimenopausal. I'm proud of it. Yep. Tell us a little bit about what that means for you. Has that impacted the intensity in your practice or your drive for the practice or where do you sit with your practice now? Oh, it has affected life in many ways. I think, you know, as women, we go through transitions all the time. It's never the same. I think, you know, in the younger years, I reflect on it in my 20s. When you're in your 20s or you're a teenager, you think it's linear, but it's really not linear. And no one's explained to me, you know, even from when I was a child, no one's explained to me what menstruation was going to be like. No one's explained to me what it was like to be pregnant and have a baby. No one educates you about womanhood at all. And so when I started getting, you know, hot flashes and insomnia, and I'm like, what's going on with me? Am I depressed? (laughs) 
am I stressed? Because it kind of mirrors that and having really big emotions like never before. And I'm going, why am I such an angry woman? Like my yoga practice is no longer working. Like you start second guessing yourself. And so, and then I kind of, I rem, you know, I just remembered having conversation with girlfriends going, and somehow perimenopause came up. I go, I know about perimenopause. How come that never crossed my mind? Yes, I'm perimenopausal. And because of that, I feel that I needed to pull back in many aspects of life, you know, one of which is yoga practice. Because my period, I've actually missed a couple of periods and I've never missed a period in my life unless I was pregnant, but I'm not. So I've never, and I know it. And so, you know, your body still feels like you're still going to have your period. You get those signs leading up to the bleed. But when you're perimenopausal, if you skip your period, then you don't have anything, but you still need to go through those, you know, roller coaster of emotions and physiological changes. And so really what happens is that now that I know it and I know the signs, then I adapt my practice based on that. It's not as physical. I just really, truly, like, honestly, listen to my body and see what I feel, like, see how far I can go. And sometimes I know it in the beginning. Sometimes I need to take it breath by breath. Like, sometimes I'd stand there and say, just your namaskar, Michelle, and just see how you go. And then next thing you know, oh, it's the end. I've done it. And there are days where I'm like, ah, oh, no, let's get the bolsters out. I take it one day at a time. And I think for me, the consistency is more important than the external. And the external does not equate to the quality of practice. And I think I've fully come to terms with that now. Now I truly deeply understand it. And that goes with other aspects of life. And I think that's one of the things that perimenopause and motherhood and yoga and relationships has really given me this new view of life going, I should have more boundaries. <laughs> I should only say yes to things that truly bring me, you know, joy and it's okay to say no. So lots of, lots of lessons from that. That's all we've got time for, for now. We're definitely going to have to get you back. Just to remind everyone how they can connect with you. Yeah, it's um, quite straightforward. So we have a website, it's mindfulbirth.com.au. We've got Instagram account as well. And you can find us on Facebook as well or info at mindfulbirth.com.au. It's great for people to just follow you on Facebook because you're always posting some really good articles, very informative and educational. Yes, yes. You have, you'll see different things from yoga to articles about parenting to research. It's just different things that women can, you know, depending on where you are in life and can share with your friends or something that can be informative. Thanks very much, Michelle. Thank you so much, Gaynor. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Head to our website, seventhseries.net, for more information on how you can connect with Michelle or find out more about Mindful Birth. You can contact me through the website if you have a guest you'd like me to interview or you'd love to share your story. Remember to subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and share episodes on your socials. Thanks for joining me. Namaste.